Hello and welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you for listening. Now, I'd like to start off right away and make an appeal. This episode covers, as a major subject, vitiforestry. And I am actively looking for anyone who has an orchard of any kind, fruit or nut, perhaps past production age and neglected, who would like to either sell or donate or partner on that land for the purpose of creating a married vine demonstration site. If you don't know what a married vine is, keep listening to this episode and you will find out. Data about growing both the trees and vines this way is desperately needed, and there are some very interesting opportunities around this project that I can discuss in person if you're interested. This is what I plan to spend the rest of my life doing in one form or another, and already am doing on a small scale here in Los Angeles, but not in any way that can be studied or used as a at-scale example. If you have a lead on land that might work for this, or if you would like to be involved in this very unique and special project that could help promote vitiforestry in a big way and maybe even discover how to make better tasting wine that also enhances the health of our planet, please get in touch with me at connect at organicwinepodcast.com or call me 310-663-3542. This podcast is possible because of listeners who subscribe via Patreon. And I am inspired and incredibly grateful for your support. If you're not a subscriber already, please consider a small monthly contribution to enable me to continue the 10 to 20 hours of research, communication, coordination, writing, editing, production, and promotion that I put into creating every hour of content that you hear with as much quality and value for you as possible. The link to subscribe will be in the show notes and on the support page at organicwinepodcast.com. Thank you so much. Now, my guest for this episode is Etel Igone. Etel is a graduate of Yale Law School, and she spent her early career working on some war crimes tribunals and with Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. She then shifted focus from human rights to environmental protection and worked with Greenpeace, focusing on, among other things, ceasing global deforestation. She continued her focus on stopping deforestation as the campaigns director at Mighty Earth, and ultimately began to shift her attention from just stopping deforestation to beginning to rebuild global forests through agroforestry. And this is where our episode comes in. She is a founding member of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable and has become a vitiforestry enthusiast and is compiling an online vitiforestry library for the Sustainable Wine Roundtable. Of every publicly available peer-reviewed study, published about vitiforestry as a resource for anyone considering the possibility of introducing agroforestry into their viticulture. She has graciously allowed me to link to this library while it is still in development from the episode page on organicwinepodcast.com. So visit there to see this library as an incredible resource if you have any interest at all in vitiforestry. Now, why vitiforestry? Why would anyone in wine consider it as something to embrace? Vitiforestry is the first step in rebuilding biodiversity. Monocultures of any kind, including wine, are ecologically terrible. They create imbalance and ill health in ecosystems, which results in greater problems and less resilience and therefore increased costs for farmers. And more and more data is coming out that monocultures result in less delicious wine. 
But more than just providing biodiversity and better wine, we humans actually need forests in order to survive on this planet. As you'll hear from Etel, humans have done and continue to be responsible for extreme amounts of deforestation globally. And many of the products of deforestation are in things that all of us use and consume daily, often without even knowing the part we are playing in our own destruction. The need to embrace agroforestry globally is urgent, and wine has a unique opportunity to lead in agroforestry for several reasons. The most important reason is that vines evolved to grow among trees. <laughs> in fact, not too long ago, all viticulture was vitiforestry. We've only divorced the grapevines from their natural partners in the last few hundred years. Now, not all vitiforestry has to involve married vines or vines growing in trees. As Etel discusses, there are many ways to incorporate trees in and around vines. Even something as simple as adding a hedgerow or riparian buffer zone can have numerous immediate benefits to an ecosystem and the vines and wine that grow there. And now, I hope you find this conversation with Etel as inspiring as I did. Enjoy! And just a little special note, right at the beginning, Etel says viticulture twice, and she actually means vitiforestry, as you'll hear. I just want to point that out so that you aren't confused. And then after that, she goes back to saying vitiforestry as she intended to. Enjoy. Etel, welcome. Thank you so much for doing this. So excited to talk to you. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. <laughs> um, so I just want to introduce you a little bit. You are the ambassador, the Vitiforestry ambassador? No, you are the ambassador for the Sustainable Wine Roundtable. We talked about Vitiforestry ambassador. Um, but, and you, you have been in quite a career that is probably colored by what you got started with early. And I, I'd love for you to start by just sharing a little bit about who you are and your journey and how you sort of got to where you are now. Oh, thank you. Well, um, I'm blushing and you're too kind. I wouldn't say I'm an ambassador, but I'm like the biggest viticulture enthusiast of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable. <laughs> um, the, the biggest lover of agroforestry wine, which is what viticulture stands for. And also, yeah, I'm a founding member of the SWR. Um, and I dream of being able to bring this vision of vitiforestry of course, to the members and um, followers of the Sustainable Wine Roundtable, but more broadly to the whole global wine industry. That's really something that inspires me and helps me um, when I start to feel eco-despair about the state of the world and how hot it is. I'm like, nope, 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 just focus on helping everyone be their best self and change um, how we live on Mother Earth. And this is one great little way to do it. But a bit about myself, my background, um, yeah, so I'm French-American, as you can probably tell from my name. And um, after coming to the U.S. for college and law school at Yale, I worked in some war crimes tribunals and also for Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and focused a lot on crimes against humanity. And um, it was a bit grim, although I, I have no regrets. I felt um, that, you know, after working in places like Iraq and uh, Sierra Leone uh, for a number of years, I wanted to switch and do something more cheerful with my life. So I decided, let me fight climate change, which maybe. That's <laughs> 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 great. Frying pan of the fire kind of <laughs> transition. 
That's why I um I begged and pleaded everyone that I could ever meet at Greenpeace to hire me, and eventually they did. And so I hopped over to Greenpeace and worked eventually as their like research um director in Southeast Asia. Um, so a lot of work that I did there was focused on deforestation, uh, especially yeah. for oil, but um, also other issues. You know, um, more sustainable seafood instead of um, horribly fished things that also are fished with seafood slavery, so bad for the planet and bad for the fishermen. And also looked a lot at um, energy issues in Southeast Asia. But yeah, so it was it was a wonderful experience um, that taught me so much about the many multifaceted environmental challenges and solutions that um, abound in this big, bold, wild, wonderful planet that we inhabit. And um, <laughs> after close to five years at Greenpeace, I moved over to Mighty Earth, which I um, was with when it got started and helped sort of get it off the ground um, and was their campaigns director at Mighty Earth for close to five years. And we worked a lot on deforestation. But at that time, I realized, oh, why are we just asking companies to stop deforestation? That's like, do no harm. We should be focused on getting companies to completely switch towards agroforestry and not only yeah. stop deforestation, but become nature positive, become contributors to do beautiful things to make up for all the bad stuff they've done in the past. <laughs> And go from, you know, cutting one forest after another, top, 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 like a football field a second, to actually really trying to heal and regenerate and change our agricultural model to the way it was meant to be, which is agroforestry, no matter what the commodity. So I became very interested in trying to get palm oil to go not only deforestation free, but also towards agroforestry. I did that in cocoa. I pushed really hard with the rubber industry. And um, yeah, and now I'm on a mat leave with my beautiful baby boy, Max, but um, still keeping a toe in the in the water or a toe in the wine glass um, with the Sustainable Wine Roundtable and helping them with this bitty forestry project. So that's me in a nutshell and how I ended up. <laughs> well, I'd love to ask a few questions about some of that experience. I know, I mean, it's... I love I love that wine is kind of where you've arrived. I'll come back to that, but you know, I I wonder if you could talk about some of the connections that you notice between human abuse and earth abuse. Like it seems like there are those are sort of inextricable. Oh, Adam, inextricable is the right word. It's often the two sides of the same coin. So here's just an example. Um when you look at fisheries, typically the most destructive fisheries in terms of earth abuse, we're talking, you know, bottom trawling, fishing in waters where it's illegal because it's a marine protected area or fishing at a time of year that it's illegal because it's supposed to be allowed to sort of rest for these little baby fish to grow up like a nursery or fishing beyond your quota, et cetera. These, all these terrible things that vessels do to hurt the oceans and the creatures that live in them, the blue lungs of our planet, typically those same vessels that are the worst for the planet are also the ones that are most likely to have labor abuse, including super extreme labor abuse like seafood slavery, where the boats become essentially floating prisons. And you'd be shocked, but there are thousands, tens of thousands of people who are affected by these horrific labor abuses in the seafood industry. Um, and so often, like, if you can catch vessels 
abusing fishermen, you will also be able to catch the same vessels that are doing horrible things to Mother Earth. And when you look at deforestation for palm oil, some of the worst cases where lots of beautiful, ancient, biodiverse rainforests have been chopped, chopped, chopped for palm oil, which goes into like 50% of the things you leave the supermarket in, right? Your shampoo, your um, chocolate, your Kellogg's cornflakes, your detergent, etc. That stuff also drives indigenous land grabbing and abuse of indigenous people and forest dependent communities. You see it in palm oil, you see it in seafood, you see it in cocoa, where you've got like several million children at any given time, probably um, doing child labor, like often hazardous child labor, but also you've got lots of pesticides and monoculture and deforestation for cocoa. And you see it in wine where, you know, it's, I think a sad truth that the wine industry doesn't have a totally great track record of how it treats its grape pickers, including cases of like slavery in South Africa and, um, you know, trickery and abusive migrant workers in Italy and whatnot. And, um, and also those same vineyards tend to be the ones that are most slapdash and haphazard when it comes to how they treat mother earth. So it's like the two sides of the same coin over and over. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really interesting that you have this history in deforestation and and you're starting to think positively about that, like the need for reforestation through through wine, through every through every um, commodity, I guess, I guess, if we consider wine a commodity. But I, and I should ask that as a question. Um, do you see wine as a commodity? I mean, I guess it is, you know, in, in reality, but in, what's your approach uh, to wine and your feelings about wine? What's your relationship to wine? Well, I think wine is a commodity, but it's a magic commodity because wine is so intertwined with moments of incredible emotional power. You know, you get married and you have a toast with champagne, right? You go out on a date with somebody that you're so in love with and you really want to impress them and you get a great bottle of wine that you share and you'll remember that forever. That taste of that wine will be inextricably intertwined in your memories with the beauty of that date with somebody hopefully that you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And wine has this emotional resonance um, that I think makes it just an incredibly special commodity because We care immensely about the moments that come with the wine, and we care about the wine that comes in those moments in a way that we don't care so much about palm oil. You know, I was talking just a few seconds ago about the fact that palm oil is in half the things you leave the supermarket with, right? When you're going through your shopping cart. And but you wouldn't know. Like who actually knows that there's palm oil in their shampoo, in their ice cream? their chips and their chocolate and their cup of noodles and their lipstick like most people just don't know it's not a commodity they care about like i think people kind of know that cocoa and coffee are a commodity and they care more about that than palm oil but what's special about wine is that it's also super traceable as a commodity because mm. we are obsessed with terroir because we value so much where the wine comes from and we know we know where it comes from whereas we don't really know often where our coffee comes from or where our chocolate comes from like did our chocolate bar come from cocoa in the ivory coast or in colombia like 
most people can't tell you the answer to that question. But wine, we absolutely know we care. We buy it on purpose because it comes from specific places. And that means it's a magic commodity for a second reason, right? It's magic because we care so much and it's so emotionally resonant. It's magic because it's so traceable. And that means it's much easier to fix the problems in your supply chain if you're in the wine industry because you know where your supply chain is. If Etel buys from Adam, then Etel can say like, hey, I love buying from Adam because he's so amazing. He does this great wine. I'm not going to buy from somebody else who has slaves or who mistreats their <laughs> grape pickers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you. so in the, you, I mean, you mentioned cocoa, you mentioned uh, palm oil. I, I mean, it's it's amazing how many people still, I, I mean, even myself, like I, I just learned from listening to other interviews with you about, you know, sodium lauryl sulfate, like what you see in every, you know, liquid soap <laughs> that you buy is a palm oil product. And this is like sort of how it's, it's concealed. What other drivers of deforestation are there globally? What's the, what are the big drivers? Okay. So you could think about it like the four horsemen of the apocalypse or the seven deadly <laughs> <laughs> the four percent <laughs> apocalypse or deforestation are the four titanic drivers are um, cattle, soy, palm oil, and pulp and paper. Those are the big four. They're really mm. titanic drivers of deforestation around the world. We need to fix that. Or it's kind of game over for humanity because actually forests don't need people, but people really, really, really do need forests in order to breathe and to keep living and having a civil human civilizations on planet Earth. Um so those are the big, big four. But then right chomping at their heels, nipping at their heels, are the next three, which are cocoa, coffee, and rubber. So that's mm. what I meant when I said the seven deadly sins of deforestation. Right. You think a little bit broader than just the four, and you're looking at the big seven. It's, um, yeah, cattle, soy, palm oil, pulp, and paper, but then cocoa, coffee, rubber right behind. And the good news is so much of the world's deforestation is just in those seven commodities, that if we could flip the script and get those commodities to stop deforestation and go for agroforestry, actually, we would like turn around the whole deforestation story for humanity. Because, you know, we eat carrots and beets and whatnot and oats, but there's not a lot of deforestation in your oat milk or your carrots. So you probably just can like chill out about everything except those big seven for the most part. That's the good news. The bad news is right. The good news is that we can fix them more easily than if it was like 30 horrible commodities that were attracted. Well, things like cows and coffee and some of those could easily be done in an agroforestry system as well, or a silvopasture system where you have many more trees than just, you know, clear cut rainforest, for example. 100% correct. I mean, cows love trees and actually, funnily enough, so do pigs and chickens. Um, <laughs> but, um, coffee loves trees and so does cocoa. And in fact, coffee and cocoa were made to be grown in jungles. Um, like understory, yeah, right? Exactly, exactly. And although it's slightly different for like rubber and palm oil because it's more about planting things under the rubber and the palm oil than it is planting mm. over, so right. coffee and cocoa like to be kind of shaded. That's why you have this thing called shade-grown coffee, which is so popular nowadays in, you know, hipster eco um, cafe. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. palm oil and rubber actually love agroforestry too because it heals the soil. It right. brings moisture into the soil and it helps retain moisture better. It um, 
promotes like biodiversity underground. You know, we always talk about big charismatic megafauna like tigers and panda bears and polar bears, but actually like the majority of life is underground and we have to protect it and it's beautiful and it's magic and it saves us so we have to save it. And so actually, yeah, agroforestry heals your soil. Um, these like fungal networks proliferate and thrive much better in agroforestry than monoculture. But what's also interesting is agroforestry brings air moisture too. Like forests are rain machines. People forget this, but forests are amazing. They make it cooler when it's hot. They make it warmer when it's cold. They keep moisture in the air, which is really good for a lot of crops. Like cocoa loves to have air moisture, actually. Mm -hmm. It sounds like if you combine rubber, palm, cocoa, and coffee all together in the same system, instead of separate monocultures, you could have, you know, some symbiotic <laughs> benefits there as well. Many people are working on variations of that, in fact, in yeah. this space. So yeah, there's tons of like combinations in that iterate that, that can be iterated. But, yeah, that's great. Well, and, you know, it's before we get too far afield from grapes. Can you talk about I know the, you know, for example, North America doesn't have the best track record with deforestation, maybe the global north in general, but can can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have terrible deforestation in North America with the boreal forest getting chopped down in Canada in a way that's terribly destructive and uh, um, releases a lot of carbon and it's just a biodiversity disaster as well as a carbon disaster. But it's true that the tropics have the most biodiversity in the forest. So in a way, in terms of like preserving biodiversity on planet Earth, um, focusing on like the Amazon, the Congo Basin, those magnificent forests of Southeast Asia, especially like in Indonesia, that's sort of where the Holy Grail is um, mm -hmm. for, for biodiversity preservation. But every single forest matters. And Adam, the crazy thing is, the more we study forests, they're very understudied, in my opinion, the more we study them, the more we realize each forest plays this incredibly unique role in maintaining a habitable planet for us. And so, yeah, we are losing a lot of forests in America and the U.S., um, often like uh, for pulp and paper industry um, yeah. that we have here. And... It really just does not have to be that way. We can absolutely do things a different way. Every time I come to people with the bad news of the eco-disaster that we're in, I also just want to rem remind people about the good news, which is that we have already got the wisdom, the technology, the science, like the research, everything that we need to flip the script and do it the right way instead of the wrong way. Yeah. You know, so... One thing I haven't talked a, a lot about, and I don't know if this is something that you've looked into, but I've recently discovered this um, or, or, you know, started learning and hearing about this connection between land forests and then the ocean forests, like the kelp forests and how interconnected they are. And if you if you strip the land of its forest, you also deprive the ocean of the minerals that, that those forests are providing to the kelp forests off the sh shore, which are extremely vitally important to our health as well, oh, uh, which are yeah. off, you know, very, very little uh, looked at, but uh, there's a great, I don't know if you've seen this um, documentary called the call of the forest. I did. Um, I did. Yes. Yeah. Isn't great. that great? But, yeah. You know, for um, on the West coast with you, Adam, it's fascinating to think about the salmon and the interaction between um, the 
forest on land and marine ecosystems via the pathway of salmon because you know salmon will come up the river and spawn and die but also be like eaten by bears and tons of other animals and so like the forests around the salmon areas in the in the pacific northwest many of those forests are actually like built off of salmon right because the bears will like right. pop the salmon and then the right. trees and the bear poop if you think about it the forests are made of salmon actually yeah. to some yeah. extent but then also of course you're correct if we destroy the rivers um uh the riparian areas around the rivers right we cut all the forests around the rivers the forests are, are what protects the rivers. One reason that like, you know, Yellowstone did so well when wolves were reintroduced is because wolves were sort of hunting for deer all around the rivers. And when you didn't have the wolves hunting the deer around the rivers, the deer spent too much time there and they trampled the edges of the rivers and the rivers got very unwell. Basically, that's my little baby boy who didn't like <laughs> after his porridge. <laughs> but the, the wolves kept the deer population in check, which meant that the edges of the rivers were able to blossom and bounce back and the trees grew again. And then the rivers got healthier. And then everything that happens upriver does affect what happens downriver, obviously. So when you deforest upstream, you'll have tons of erosion and it can destroy all the wetlands that are like in that sort of delta area where the river meets the, the sea. Um, and you can have like sediments building up in a really bad way. So if you're around an area with coral reefs, that can kill a reef. Um, but even if you're not in an area around coral reefs, it can hurt the like kelp forest, as you were saying. Basically, we're all totally interconnected. What we do in place A absolutely affects place B, which means yep. that we should look at our actions in this big web. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, um, well, just, I really wanted to draw you out about some of these things because I think you do have this global perspective as well as a lot of data and findings about these things that I think are really important to share with as many people as possible. So thanks for indulging <laughs> these questions. Um, but even though they're slight, there's a very slight connection to, uh, I guess, agriculture, although, you know, as you said, I mean, not the, agri the viticulture that we want to talk about, but as you said, everything's all connected. It's the way I sort of look at it as well. So when we're talking about the ocean, we, we were still talking about viticulture. Um, well, you know, it but, is so connected because we were just talking about salmons and the connection between forests and salmon and rivers and ocean health. And actually, there's now wine in the Pacific Northwest, which is salmon safe, allegedly. Yeah. Which right. is, we, <laughs> our wineries can be places that dump tons of pesticides into yeah. improperly managed water um flows that just end up in the neighboring rivers which kill salmon and then the winery has done its part to make sure that the salmon go extinct and you know then everything goes out of kilter the forest the salmon the river the downstream or yeah. conversely our wineries that are around salmon runs can make a huge difference in helping uplift entire communities and businesses and all the agriculture around there and raising awareness and i think 
you know, talking about salmon brings us to wine because we're in this beautiful interconnected web of life. So, um, very, very good point. Yes. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and it's funny, I was just talking with somebody about copper and, you know, copper being this one sort of off used organic substance uh, in organic vineyards. And yet it is extremely damaging to aquatic life and river life and the downstream effects of that, you know, specifically to salmon and stuff like that. So it's, care care even within these certifications that are that are, are seemingly beneficial to the world um, you still have to be careful and thoughtful because there yeah there's a lot of nuance and a lot of things to think about in an interconnected world um, yeah I really believe that um, we have to welcome everyone into the fold for environmental transitions wherever it is that they're at, you know, even if they're really like toxic actors, the key thing is to take that first step and to recognize, you know, I'm here on mother earth. What I do affects her. I want to be my best self. Let me start a journey. And like you said, you know, some certification schemes are partly good, but also partly not so great and could be improved. And being in them doesn't necessarily mean that a winery or wine company or a vineyard is is A-OK, but it's a step, right? And so I think it's this very, how do we thread this needle, Adam? How do you welcome yeah. everyone into the fold and then put them on an escalator where slowly, step by step, we lift them up and help them rise up, whether it's like, you go organic or you go salmon safe and then you think about renewable energy in your vineyard and then you think about, you know, um, workers' rights in your vineyard and then you think about DEIJ. Like, you know, the wine industry, unfortunately, is very dominated by straight white men for a long time and it's, you know, important in New Zealand. There's like these new movement of of, of Maori um, wineries and in South Africa, there's black owned wineries that have cropped up that were impossible, like, you know, a couple decades ago. And it's beautiful to see this movement towards DIJ. So how can different vineyards, I think, move through what is like not always an easy pathway, but sort of move through an escalator and, and, you know, not like be shamed and punished for not being great, but, but be mindful and aware. Okay, we're not great. We're not doing great. So how can we be better? Like, let's make a time-bound implementation plan to be as good as we can, as fast as we can, doing it at our own pace. It's our journey. You know, everybody's a little different. But how, how, how do we thread that needle, I guess? Yeah, no, that's a great thing. I mean, this is a, a big thing that I get paralyzed by because I, like I was telling you, I, I've, I've moved so deep into the deep end uh, beyond organic, beyond, you know, some of these uh, simple certification ideas in, into this holistic form of thinking and, and how to get out of my, my mind to be back where somebody is at the beginning of their journey is it can be difficult at times to just be able to know how to encourage somebody on that first step. How, what do you do? Or do you have any yeah. practical? Yeah, I think the key is to encourage and not frighten and to give mm. people all the tools and knowledge to make it as easy for them to wrap their mind around their their different options. Like almost like a restaurant menu. You know, you wouldn't ask everyone to eat like everything on the menu all at once, right? But you bring them to the restaurant, you give them a menu. And, you know, if they live in the neighborhood, they'll keep coming back to the restaurant and eating more things on the menu. So here's a good example. You talked about copper, right? 
actually one of the articles that I've collected in my quest, my quixotic quest to help the wine industry go towards vitiforestry is an article about copper and geese and how when you move your winery into a system that's like an orchard crops and geese all in the same land, um, actually, it turns out geese can improve the efficiency of microbial biomass and it removes copper from the soil with the grass intake and it shows only a moderate accumulation of copper in the liver. And so, you know, this is the kind of thing where like, what if a vineyard owner is using copper, they are organic, but they feel bad about copper because as you said, it's not great for Mother Earth to use a lot of it. How do we help them wean themselves? What data can we put in front of them about geese, about other options? And this is why I think, you know, berating and chastising wineries and vineyard owners isn't as productive right now as helping them learn, helping them grow through knowledge acquisition, making it easy for them to understand what all their options are. Then, you know, if we've done that adequately, which hasn't yet been done, and they still don't respond, then you can start to push and nudge in a little bit harshly. <laughs> give love, love and knowledge. Yeah. Well, I mean, you give a, I, just as an example from your, from your history and in your past, I read this article about um, Cargill, the worst corporation in the world um, that was part of, it was, I think it was a Mighty Earth campaign, if, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah, we wrote uh, it. <laughs> and I love, um, uh, Henry Waxman was my congressman for a long time, so big fan of his. Um, and he, he yeah, he's he's amazing. Um, I'm very fortunate. I was like, well, I, it was like I never needed to write a letter to my congressperson, you know, to like encourage them to do anything. Like he was, I would, I would be like, "Hey, could you please be that, you know, sign on to this bill?" And he's, and he would respond, or his staff would respond, and be like, "Actually, he sponsored the bill. He wrote the bill." <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, cool. I'll just stop." Um, but he, yeah, I loved his thing, and that he tried sitting down with the CEO multiple times, and it was only after getting commitments in person from the CEO and then giving them ample time to make those commitments come to fruition that uh, he was like, you know, at this point, we can see that there's some disconnect between what he's saying and what the actual policies are being implemented on the ground with Cargill. And so we're happy now to say this, we need to push them in a, in, and that's why this campaign is being done. So it was like, that that is a really, I, I mean, to look somebody in the eye and be like, hey, this is these are some alternatives this is this is what you're doing that is very harmful to the world here's some alternatives how about taking them on and they say yes and then you give them the chance to do it when they don't do it then you say okay you're bad (laughs) you're the worst corporation in the world cargill um i i think that is great you got it that's so perfect you basically said it better than i could have you know that's the pathway i think right you try you inform you ring the alarm you share information and data and solutions and you push, 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 push in a constructive way. If it really doesn't work, then yeah, something harsher has to come in. <laughs> um, well, so I would love to sort of jump into the project that you're working in for the Sustainable uh, Wine Roundtable, the Vita Forestry Library. Can you talk about that? Oh, yeah. Well, it's exactly in line with what you were saying just minutes ago, which is, you know, 
um, that a lot of people in the wine industry who are not where you're at, you know, they're just starting their journey. You're very far along, right? You were asking, how do we help them? And I thought, you know, rather than just go shout at everyone and say, like, why aren't you doing vitiforestry? I would do something very constructive <laughs> and try to collect all the peer-reviewed scientific papers about agroforestry wine, also known as vitiforestry, and organize them. Um, of course, these are all publicly available papers. When they're not publicly available, essentially, I just put in the abstract, which is publicly available, and links where people mm. can click to buy on the article that's not publicly available. And I thought, okay, besides reading all the abstracts and the articles, if I was a wine company CEO or running a vineyard, um, and I decided I wanted to do vitiforestry, I would want to read the science to understand what's a good way to do it, what are some common pitfalls to avoid, you know, what are the most um, impressive success stories that I would like to emulate that have, you know, been featured in these scientific papers. I thought maybe I would also want to be able to call up some experts to potentially like hire a scientist expert to come help me out and create a strategy for my individual specific winery. I mean, like doing, you know, Marlboro Valley Sauvignon Blanc in New Zealand is very different from doing a Bordeaux or, you know, a, a Napa Valley. Uh, you know, these are all just different ecosystems and different weathers and different soil qualities. And um, so every vineyard is very special. Terroir matters immensely. And so maybe having the science would be interesting, but it wouldn't be enough if I was a wine um, industry player, maybe I would want something hyper tailored to my vineyard, my terroir. So I created a list, a roster, if you will, of all the scientists that have published on vitiforestry with their publicly available information. Many of them are at universities, so they have like offices online. You can go find them um, and, and write them in their office. So I, I organized that. And then I also thought, okay, well, some people might also just want to like see how sexy it could make their vineyard and mm. how could I convince them that going towards video forestry makes you really sexy and appealing and cool um, and all the cool kids will want to come visit you and do wine tourism in your agroforestry vineyard well I decided to collect all the media coverage that I could find mm. of agroforestry wine and actually it's amazing when you look at the media coverage it's pretty impressive um, yeah. you know, this is like not niche, momo wearing, tree hugging, granola crunching, um, newspapers that cover right. you know, the agroforestry wine space. This is like vin et champagne in, um, in France, like France Info, you know, but also, um, like. Reuters. I mean, Reuters is the, one of the biggest um, uh, news agencies in the world, or like town and country. You know, we have some really big, famous media um, groups that are interested in agroforestry wine. And I thought, oh, that might be kind of inspirational for people who want to make the switch to see I'm not going to be appealing to just a niche group of weirdos. This is going to be hot tamales. Yeah, that's great. Well, can you do you have a, a working good definition of, of vitiforestry or agroforestry that may just give us a handle as we talk about this? 
Yes. So I <laughs> consider myself to be uh, an agroforestry specialist. Um, and therefore, you know, I have not felt um, that uh, I was skilled and qualified enough to write like the sort of the definition. But here's my definition that I use as I've been building this library, um, which very generously the European uh, Agroforestry Association has been helping me with. Essentially, vitiforestry is vineyards that mix in trees. And they mix it in different ways. Sometimes the trees and hedges are mixed in like donuts around a vineyard. Sometimes the trees are mixed in like zebras. It's like stripes, right? It's mm -hmm. interspersed. Sometimes it's not a donut and it's not a zebra. It's like little tree islands in a sea of wine. Mm. Um, I am agnostic about zebras and donuts and islands in a sea of wine. I think that <laughs> there's so much to be said for all those models. And it really might depend on whether you're on a slope. It might depend on what kind of soil you have. Is it chalky soil? Is it got a little bit more of a clay type soil? It might depend on your weather. It might depend on so many factors. Um, it might depend on your neighbors. You know, maybe your neighbors are odious and hate trees and are allergic to all trees. And so you can't do a donut. <laughs> or maybe your neighbors are only tree lovers and huggers and they want you to do a donut around your farm. So I think um, for me, it's, it's not about judging which of those kinds of vitiforestries are better. It's just about identifying that those are different avenues for vitiforestry. And I have read so many different articles that talk about different tree densities. You know, in cocoa, for example, it's really important to hold the line for the chocolate industry and to say like robust cocoa agroforestry has to be more than 30% shade. Okay. Um, because otherwise you have all kinds of greenwashing and some corporations will say we're doing agroforestry cocoa, but it's really like 5% shade, which right. doesn't count. But um, in the wine industry, I don't think we're at that place yet. There isn't any kind of push to greenwash and say that you're doing vitiforestry when you actually have a very low percentage of tree cover. It's really more of a, a I think, a, a nascent space in the wine industry. And so... I'm going to choose to be an eternal optimist um, <laughs> and um, uh, wait for the industry and the scientists to come together. We're hopefully going to do this big launch of the e-library with the European, um, it's called ERAF, actually. Um, ERAF, okay. E-U-R-A-F. Um, and that stands for the European Agroforestry Federation. Um, and so hopefully we'll do a big launch at one of their upcoming um conferences where you bring together scientists and industry. And one thing I'd love to hammer out at that time is like, what's a good benchmark? Where do we say draw the line? It has to be more shade than X. It can't be less shade than Y in between, you know, those parameters. That's like the sweet spot. And, you know, right, right now I'm in Greece. It's super, super hot and dry here. Maybe you could have more shade in a place like Greece. And we were just talking about Virginia, you know, um, it's got a lot of rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can have less shade in a place like Virginia, so there might be some wiggle room depending on what ecosystem you're in. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm I was just looking um 
Chateau Anthonic is one that I heard about recently. But um, but I was going to ask you, in your research and everything, are there places around the globe where someone could go see uh, a, a very robust vitiforestry system uh, still, still in action? Yes, I actually in my e library have a whole list of the vitiforestry. Um, Fantastic! You can find <laughs> either by reading about them in the media or in these scientific papers. Um, so yeah, you know, one of the best places for people to go is actually a kind of experimental teaching farm that's affiliated with a university, and it does a lot of agroforestry wine, and it's called Restaclair. Rest, like I am taking a rest from doing monoculture because that's bad. Um, and I am like <laughs> I am in the planet, and there's no other planet to be in. Um, and then <laughs> Clier, C L I E R E S. Anyone who's thinking about switching to agroforestry who's in Europe could probably easily go um, hop over to the experimental farm at Restin Clair and take a look at what they're doing because they're doing fantastic stuff. But if you're in Chile, there's um, apparently a great agroforestry vineyard at Viña Tarapaca. In Italy, you've got Di Filippo Wines. In South Africa, um, Graham Beck Robertson. Um, you know, I am making, the, I will of course make this available to you um, for you to share with all your 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 listeners, um, and it's uh, my pleasure if people crowdsource and tell me about more wineries that I haven't yet found that are agroforestry wineries. But what I guess I'm getting at is that pretty much everywhere you are in the world, there's one agroforestry vineyard somewhere not too far from you that you could go check out. <laughs> yes, if you're in Los Angeles, I can show you one. Um, yeah, a very, very small one. Please <laughs> visit Adam. <laughs> very small one, but um, working working on bigger projects. Um, now, I, I I I wanted to ask you a question. We met um, at this Fresh Ventures panel, which was fantastic, and was talking about regenerative vit viticulture. And for whatever reason, I was asked the question: um, wh What are the challenges to transitioning to regenerative and and since we're talking about vitiforestry I, you know I, I consider that one of the regenerative kinds of viticulture that can be done and you know I, we've already sort of talked about some of the approach to how to encourage people to make the transition but what have you found are those challenges are the biggest challenges for people to transition so I guess the biggest challenge is emotional and mental, I think, mm. Adam. What yeah. do I mean by that? I mean that since the 1950s, right, since after World War II pretty much, all of modern agriculture has been speeding into this downward spiral of monoculture and pesticide and fertilizer use um, that's very reckless and very new in the history of humanity but it's now 2023 and that's an entire lifetime for most farmers and vineyard owners and wine company managers and supermarket 
since, you know, wine purchasers. Um, and so since they've been their whole life in this like mode of take, make, waste, rape the planet, monoculture, dump pesticides and fertilizer up the wazoo and insecticides and fungicides too, I should add. Um, it's mentally and emotionally terrifying to take the leap and say like, no, you know, mainstream agriculture is on the wrong pathway. We're reaching these ecological boundaries for our water, for our air, for carbon. This is terrible. We have to change and do things in a different, better way um, that's more earth friendly. And so let's think about organic. Let's think about regenerative. Let's think about vitiforestry. This, I think for a lot of business owners, it feels very um, revolutionary. It feels very like icky, freaky, touchy-feely, out there, hippy-dippy stuff. And many people in the wine space don't realize that actually vines have been grown on trees. Like that's how they evolved. <laughs> right. I think that's really, we grew them on trees. Um, and so it, there's a long history of doing it. And there's also all this new science about how we can do it um, that's even more sophisticated than what our ancestor did, who didn't have the benefit of electronic libraries that hoover up science from around the world um, and put it at your disposal no matter where you are. It's just a little click of your fingers. So I think it's a mental, emotional block to doing regenerative agriculture. And then I would say that's number one. Yeah. Number two, big challenge is lack of knowledge. Hmm. Like there's a lot of information now about how to go organic if you're in the wine industry or other industries uh, in the food space, I would say. Um, you know, it's no longer as marginal as it was a couple decades ago. And so you can easily go get a class and you can look at stuff online and ask your other organic farmers in your neck of the woods. But vitiforestry is, is, is not as widespread. And that's why I'm making the library because I wanted to make the information so readily available all in one place, one stop shop, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, or grape squeezy <laughs> as the case may be. <laughs> yes. Um, and if we can talk about vitiforestry, what, what are some of the findings that you have found? Like, you know, what are some of the questions, maybe is a better way to put it, that, that are interesting to you, that are exciting you about vitiforestry? Oh, I love that question. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm so excited. Basically, um, I even have no words for how excited I am, but it, it sort of down <laughs> to two big things. One, which I feel really passionate about, and one which I think about more strategically. So what I feel passionately about is that it turns out vitiforestry is fantastic agronomically. The trees are great for the soil health. They are great for um, maintaining water and moisture in the soil, but also air moisture. Um, and the trees actually protect vines from these hot gusts that can desiccate grapes. Like right now it's very hot, so that's obviously on everybody's mind, but climate change is going to probably make it even hotter. And so we should be prepared for more and more of these hot gusts that desiccate grapes at scale and can like ruin an entire crop for a whole year, right? Um, but it's not just that, like one thing that wine wineries are particularly sensitive to 
is mite outbreaks and protection from wind from the trees, because obviously trees are like windbreaks, uh, protection from wind can help curb the dust that contributes to mite outbreaks, right? Because Mm -hmm. mites love dust and dust (laughs) floats around much more easily when you have lots of wind. And so the trees protect the wine, not just from the gusts that desiccate them, but also from the mites. And then what's really interesting is that um, when you've got these heat waves, like what we're in right now, right, Um, which probably more of that coming to theaters near you. (laughs) 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 Um, Trees obviously provide shade. You know, it doesn't take a scientist to tell you that. I don't need to tell you that when you walk under a tree and you sit in the shade, it feels nicer than being in the boiling sun. It's not just for humans. It's for grapes too. Actually, trees can make shade that protect grapes from these climate-induced mega droughts and heat waves. And um, that is really important for wineries that don't want the grapes to be too jammy and too sweet, but it also mitigates this early bud break problem, which is quite specific to the wine industry, right? There's nothing like that in other commodities. Um, But although it's obvious to everyone that trees can make you cooler when it's hot and sunny, what isn't so obvious is that trees can make you warmer at night when it's frosty. Um, and so actually trees and vineyards, especially when there are enough of them and they're well positioned, they can protect vineyards from frost because of the nighttime radiative heating effects of trees. And frankly, I don't know if you agree, but I think that's a lot better than lighting fires in vineyards at night, which people actually <laughs> do, and flying helicopters over your fields to invert the heat um, yep. in yep. the air of their vine, which people literally actually do. I didn't make that up. So yeah. Um, yeah, trees, better than helicopters, better than lighting. <laughs> um, and then it's not just that they cool you when you're hot and warm you when it's frosty. Um, trees actually have been proven in these vitiforestry systems to increase grapes' freshness because of the transpiration, right? Mm. Because trees' transpiration, they take water from below and evaporate into their branches. They refresh the vineyard and it therefore gives you this higher quality must and fresher wine with lower alcohol and higher acidity. That's often really important for certain kinds of, of wines. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's not just acidity, like it can also improve other key wine quality indicators like bricks, like density, you know, let's go back to this thing of geese. The geese can reduce copper in soil because of their poo. So, you know, um, it's not just geese that you can mix into your winery system. I still remember visiting this wonderful vineyard, um, Yeeland, um, Peter Yeeland in New Zealand, which is organic and also has these little chickens that go around and are essentially like pest control because the chickens eat the insects and they've got little dwarf sheep roaming around as well which is great because they're too small to eat the vines but they eat a lot of the bad weeds um so yeah you can have not just trees but an agroforestry system can be about mixing animals with your vines um and also you know we see especially if you're in a place that's really wet like we we're talking about um virginia um when you have trees in the system, it creates this resilient microbiome for the grapes that grow, especially near hedges, and that helps mm-hmm. the vines to fight off rot. Mm-hmm. So look, it's like soil water holding capability to res- resist droughts. If you bring the right kind of trees, they can attract bats and the bats can eat the pests because um, 
now, especially with climate change, pests can be like moving and proliferating. So look, agronomically, I'm just so excited. I know it sounds nerdy, but like all this stuff, (laughs) the goose poop and this water and the soil and the bricks and density and acidity benefits um, and the cooling and the heating. I just, I think it's beautiful and magic. And and I wish everybody knew about it because then (laughs) I'd be excited too. Um, I've heard, I've also heard, uh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say something I'm less excited about, but more strategically interested in is carbon credits. Oh yeah. A lot of companies in the wine industry are seeking to go, um, for net zero and this like race to zero it's called or carbon neutral. And, you know, if you're a wine company or like a big conglomerate with wine in your company or a supermarket that retails wine, um, or a restaurant or a hotel chain that sells wine to your customers. Like, obviously there's many things you can do. You can have electric vehicles, you can change your energy to renewables, et cetera. But the beauty of thinking about carbon insetting in your wine supply chain is that it's 100% traceable. Usually we really know where our wine comes from. So you're not giving random money away to random actors that you don't know, right? You're in control of your supply chain. You know these actors. And we have a very good idea of the carbon benefits of going from monoculture to vitiforestry. And incidentally, might I add, the carbon benefits of going for organic. So if you want to do regenerative wineries, you might be able to think about that as part of your carbon insetting as opposed to your carbon offsetting pathway. And I think that makes it financially much more interesting for a lot of big companies. And this is something that I don't feel as passionate about as the agronomic benefits, but strategically, I think it's really worth elevating. Yeah, very good point. Yeah, it was one of the things I've heard about. I don't know if you have any data or have read any uh, papers about it, but the, the idea that trees will mine a deeper soil profile and then when they drop their leaves they're providing a a different level of nutrition for the vines around them so they're actually you know giving the vines things that they might not be able to get themselves absolutely and can i tell you something funny about the connection between wine and chocolate other than they're both delicious and should be consumed (laughs) together as often as possible in my book (laughs) but, um, Please don't tell me there's two million uh, child children employed in wine. <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. that's just cocoa. But okay. um, uh, the interesting thing about agroforestry cocoa is that almost all the fine flavor cacao that goes into the best chocolate, as opposed to you know cocoa that's just like mixed in with tons of sugar and palm oil for like bottom end. Um, chocolate, almost all the best chocolate comes from agroforestry systems because the trees do enhance the soil so much that it enhances the flavor profile of the cacao. And I think so, it would be fascinating um, for mm-hmm. wineries to study this further. It's an, an under yes. thing, but it's real. It's real. This is, uh, this is a huge question that I think is, I, I mean, I... I would love to, and I know you said that, you know, you can end up with a fresher profile, like lower, you know, I'm assuming that's like retaining acidity and, and, um, ripening a little slower because of a little more shade in the vineyard. But 
I would love to study if you did take two systems side by side in the same area um, that were one with trees and one without trees and ripen the grapes to the same level, would you taste something different as, you know, between the two, you know, assuming all variables were accounted for and you had a control, but um, yeah, I would love to know if just that relationship with the tree in the soil and above the soil makes a difference in the flavor of the wine as well. And I, I mean, my assumption is that it would like, you, you know, you have this now you've brought this up about co- 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 cocoa. So I'm, I'm uh, even more um, prone to think that that is true, but um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious to talk and, and explore that. Um, and I, have you experienced, do you, do you know anybody that's working on that? Am I the only person that's asking that question? I do not, but I would hereby volunteer to be a taster in that. Me too. <laughs> I would volunteer to be a grower, Frank, frankly. Um, I, 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 I know the, so this idea of, you know, the old word in Italian um, is a married vine. So it's vines with trees are called married vines. And I, I, you know, I think there's something appropriate about that, at least if you're happily married, like I am. Um, There's something nice about that because then all of these other vines are divorced vines, you know, they're alone out in the vineyard and there's, you know, it, it implies this break from something that's important to you and to your, you know, to your life, to your well-being, to your everything. Um, and yeah, there are more and more I'm discovering because I'm digging into it. Some, you know, I mean, there are old systems. I mean, well, I mean, every system prior to the modern era was married vines because we didn't have posts and trellises and you know, in it made in industrial ways like we have now with steel posts or pressure treated wood posts and long spools of of metal wire that we could create artificial trees with, um, artificial support. And so everything was done that way. I mean, we have still some of these old systems, I think in northern Portugal and scattered throughout Italy that I know of, and you probably know of other ones. But um, have you, are you, looking into any of those like the sort of married vine where it's more than just having circles and donuts and zebras and stripes and <laughs> zigzags or whatever <laughs> but it's like actual you know pairing of the vine with the trees in the vineyard well let's nerd out for a second because i yeah. love ancient <laughs> Um, etymological uh, uh, roots of words and um, let's just talk about the Latin f- for vine right we call vines for you know wine it's it's vitis vinifera which mm-hmm. literally means a vine and was grown on trees before trellis systems were invented like the ancient mm-hmm. Roman system arbusta mm-hmm. a used trees as living trellises like vines and trees are as you said they are a marriage made in heaven that has evolutionarily been a, a perfect combination until we divorced and it is as wrenching i think for vineyards to be divorced from trees as it is for people to be divorced from their significant other that they married because they really love them so vineyard agroforestry systems were actually the norm in wine grape brewing regions all over the world until just a few 
hundred years ago. And like you said, the closer we get to modern times, the more divorced we get from trees and the more we have like metal sticks and things. But there's beautiful old paintings. One of my favorite paintings is by Jacob Philip Hackert. Um, and uh, it's of uh, these beautiful vines growing all over trees. Yeah, I think I know that one. Um, mm-hmm. I think it might be on the um, the organic wine podcast uh, website. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> my, my sort of secret subtle—it's no longer about organic wine. It's about viticulture, folks. Uh, subliminal messaging on the on the website. <laughs> and, and you know, you to your point about how some of this has survived. Um, you don't have to do agricultural archaeology. You can still see these um, vite maritata, which are yeah. alive today in Campania. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's now a niche, right? But um, there's also, sometimes it just has a different name. It's not called viteforestry. Like um, in, in Northern Italy, it can be called piantata. Mm, I've heard um, of Alberta. Alberata is in the Alberata, center. Alberata, that's it. Alberata. In the north, Alberata in the center, and Vite Maritata in the south. Um, uh-huh. And these these things are, are sort of niche because like we've encroached so much with our, our modern monoculture way of doing things, but they're still alive today. And this is how it used to be everywhere. And then I've, uh, in France, the culture in Autain, I don't know. My pronunciation's horrible, but maybe you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. The hottie, hottie uh, viticulture, essentially. Yeah. Um, raised, yeah. elevated, right? Like up in yeah. trees. Absolutely. Um, you know, all this to say, viticulture is real. It's not like an <laughs> imaginary thing that I dreamed up when I was chatting with Hermione last night in, in my REM cycle. Viticulture is real. Viticulture used to be the norm for millennia. That's how, like you know, Homer is like filled with wine. How do you think they grew wine back in the day? This yeah. is used to be the norm. It has changed only very recently. The change that we've seen isn't necessarily a great one for the vines or the soil or the whole ecosystem. And now we can unwind that harm. We can reimagine ourselves. You know, you'd asked Adam, what are the biggest obstacles? And I'd said like a lot of it is mental and emotional. What if we reimagine ourselves and we think of ourselves as the Hobbit generation, right? We know climate chaos is around the corner it's shaping up to be very bad, right? Kind of like Sauron was not a good guy. But <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're super powerful or big or got big muscles or lots of money. Like these little hobbits went and threw the ring into the crack of Mount Doom and it made a huge difference. And each one of us can be a little hobbit and do our bit. And we can be the generation, the hobbit generation that like says no to monoculture that says no to wasteful, hazardous, dangerous, reckless pesticide, insecticide, fungicide use. We can say no to doing things in a way that is so harmful to the planet that we depend on. We can wake up to the reality that trees don't need us, but we really, really need them. And we need them everywhere. 
we need them pronto. And like the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And the second best time to plant a tree is tomorrow. And so here, <laughs> or today. Or today. And so whether you're a winery or a vineyard manager or somebody who, you know, buys and sells wine for a big supermarket, whatever place you are at in the industry, I hope that you feel you can be a brave hobbit and join our party and <laughs> be a solution. You know, be every one of us can, can be a solution. We can be our best self. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you for that. That's a, I feel like that's a good send off. That's a really, <laughs> really inspirational and hopeful uh, call to, you know, to, to our best selves. So thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Adam. I'm a huge fan of your work. It was such a pleasure. My pleasure. Well, there you have it. I am so grateful to Atel for inspiring us all to go out and become the Hobbit generation. I think there's so much in that that I resonate with and really appreciate. And I just wanted to add in there, you know, she's got this incredible vitiforestry library that she's compiling find it on organicwinepodcast.com and this podcast itself is becoming a bit of a incredible resource and library which is really what i intend it to be for it to be searchable when people look for these kind of topics online and on their podcast app if they're just looking for information and you can go back and actually find multiple other episodes about vitiforestry and there are more coming hint hint and i'm really happy to share that with you and if you would spread the word or use it that would be fantastic and if you have any feedback for me any comments please feel free to reach out and let me know if there's any topics or anything that would be helpful for you to hear on this podcast that you think would be a great addition to this library. Thanks so much.